Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 45 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Grief and improv are not two terms that you would normally put together. But today's guest, Bart, actually explains that tears and laughter are actually two emotions that are really close together. And he has certainly learned that when one of those starts going, the other one will start to flow as well. Bart's son, David, died suddenly in an accident that you'll hear about on the football field when he was just 10 years old. Bart was working as an actor and writer in Los Angeles at the time and had to go back to his normal occupation after David's death. He says that it felt strange to him at first, going back to make people laugh when inwardly he was feeling so much sorrow. But overall, he quickly learned that this was the place that offered him the most healing. After a time, he started an organization called Healing Improv, where he would do improv games with other bereaved parents. This socialization and just sharing of emotions was so helpful to so many parents. And he also wrote a book called Healing Improv that you can find online at Amazon. I will make sure to put a link on my website. Although I've not quite finished the book, I have thoroughly enjoyed what I have read and highly recommend all of you to read it as well. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode today. It has a lot more laughter than tears. Welcome to the show, Bart. I really appreciate you being on and am looking forward to our conversation today. Well, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm glad I could join and I'm glad we could talk about uh, Andy and David. Yes. Well, first of all, why don't you tell us all about David and well, David's life as a kid? David was uh, my firstborn. He's, uh, he's the one that turned me into a dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a really very much a mini me and whenever people see pictures of us together they're like oh my goodness that was you uh he was he was a really really smart kid um it was great with math and those kind of things they sort of came natural to him and he was very competitive he -hmm. was not the world's most athletic kid but you gave him a competition and he wanted to be involved with it and Mm -hmm. uh it was actually gosh i guess it was second grade or so he came home with this flyer from school that said you know play football and he told me he wanted to play football and uh, i was a little hesitant because it was football and i I did some research and i said what do you mean like flag football and he said no 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 full football uniform pads everything and he gave me the flyer and i checked stuff up online about it and 
it, it, here comes that that father of a dead child's apology that we always want to throw out there so people know that we weren't being bad parents. I went online and did all sorts of research about football and with all the safety equipment they they wear, the number of injuries in football really don't start to happen to kids until they hit high school and older because they're not big enough strong enough or heavy enough to overcome the protective gear that protects them. There's a lot more injuries in soccer and baseball and those things. So we went ahead and David absolutely adored it. He, he quickly earned the name, nickname Lionheart from his coaches because like I said, though he wasn't the most coordinated kid, he never stopped and he mm -hmm. never gave up. Mm -hmm. He was in, it was the beginning of his fourth year of football. Uh, and I was the equipment manager on the team, so I was there every night, and he was loving it. He was going from being the slowest kid on the field when they did laps to being in the middle of the pack. He was, he was really coming into his own, but he said to me one night going to the field, you know, I don't know how much longer I want to play this. It's, it's starting to get a little bit hard, meaning that just physically it was a rougher game than it had been when he started. Yes. And, uh, you know, we talked about it. And that year, I actually went out and he and I, we bought the most expensive helmet that you can buy with the most protection because he was a smart, wonderful kid. I didn't want him getting hurt. And they were just using regular helmets that had been passed down. And I thought, well, we'll get a better helmet. Well, one night at practice, uh, they were doing a drill and the ball ended up in his hands, which is not normally where it ends up. And uh, he went running through the drill and actually miraculously got past the tacklers. And he was running for daylight, as they say. And the whole yeah. team was cheering because it was David running for daylight. And he never did that. And at the last minute, one of the kids who was the defender who had been playing with him for four years got up from the ground and chased David. And at the last second, just tripped him up. David went down and fell at the wrong angle at the wrong time. He was fully suited up with the football helmet and everything else and suffered an acute subdural hematoma, which is a brain bleed. And yeah. he hopped up and gave me the thumbs up, which means, you know, please don't embarrass me. I'm fine because he went down hard and he yeah. jumped up and I said, okay, well, get in there, get me another tackle. And he got back into the drill and about five minutes later, he went down. Um, and I thought he'd tripped on a hole on the field and me and another dad sort of laughed about it because he just had this great run, which was something he didn't do. But David didn't get back up. He was having trouble getting back up off the ground. And I thought maybe he'd injured an ankle or a knee or yeah. something. And I ran over there and no, it was, it had been a matter of anywhere from five to 10 minutes. The brain bleed was so bad that it was already starting to choke out his brain. I mean, oh, which, you know, I was there with him as he lost consciousness. The ambulance was actually literally a block and a half away that, and they were there instantly and they couldn't do anything for him. It was, uh, I mean, we went to the hospital, we went through all this stuff, but my brother's a doctor and told me, you know, you could have had a neurosurgeon on the sideline and it wouldn't have done any good. It, it was that cataclysmic an injury which didn't certainly look like it when it happened you know yeah. he it shouldn't have happened the way it did it was just the wrong angle at the wrong time and he was gone wow. you know it it was a 
needless to say, as you know, and certainly anybody listening who's gone through it, it was devastating. And yeah. uh, his his little sister, Abby, who was just about two years younger than him, we picked her up. We went to the hospital that night. We were there. Everything went down. And she stayed with friends overnight. And we had to tell her the next morning that he, he wasn't going to make it. And, you know, went through all the most horrible things in the world that you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, we were acutely aware very quickly that we weren't the only ones that lost it. He had an entire team full of teammates, guys who he's been playing with for, you know, three or four years. And uh, they all felt horribly guilty about it. And, you know, so I, my wife and I both sort of reached out to make sure the kids knew we didn't blame them and tried to build that community and let them know it wasn't their fault because I didn't want to destroy their lives. And ultimately, our lives became about protecting Abby and surviving, you know, and making sure that though this was going to change her life and certainly would ruin the life we all had planned for all of us, we weren't going to let it ruin it any more than it had to. And Abby really became the focus. And uh, for those first two years, that was really what it was all about, was making sure that Abby's boat was as stable as it could be and sharing everything that we were going through with her so she knew that everything she thought and felt she could talk to us about and knew that we weren't holding anything back from her. Um, I am proud to say that my 18-year-old daughter, who is now a sophomore at Colorado State University, if they ever get back to campus, uh, <laughs> is, is one of the most empathetic and open and caring young ladies that I know, who loves to take on the causes for those that maybe aren't as fortunate as she's been in her life, but she understands. There was a principal at her high school who lost a son while she was there, and everybody was signing cards for him, and her friends were like, come on, sign the card. And Abby was like, no, that's okay. And she sat down and wrote a two-page letter to the principal telling him, I lost my brother. This is what we went through. This is the kind of stuff you may go through. You know, I understand. We've been there. All without any kind of prompting from me or her mom, uh, you know, she makes us proud every day. And she's a a great young lady. So we did something right. And we have great communication, a more open relationship, I think, that most parents and kids have because of what we went through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It just changes you. I think it, I mean, all the parents I've talked to, we all feel like we have more compassion now than we used to. And certainly your daughter has more compassion in her life just by having lived grief for a long, long time. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And, well, and, and it's was. interesting. I, I remembered, it, it took me a little while to draw this correlation, but she was in second grade when David died, right around the same age I was when I lost the first of my four grandparents. And mm-hmm. we were close to my grandparents. We saw them all the time and everything else. And when my grandmother died, I was able to reflect back on just how much I didn't understand when my grandmother died what death was all about and what it entailed. Mm -hmm. And I I really attempted to make sure that I could ask Abby questions and she could ask me questions so that any of those looming weird thoughts that she might have as a kid, because she didn't fully understand what had happened, that she could ask them. And that would, as time went on, I read a couple of books that said, as time goes on, as they mature, 
those more mature questions about the death that happened when she was seven, you know, mm -hmm. are going to come about because her brain now thinks that way. And it didn't when she was seven. And sure enough, there were, it must have been three or four years into our grief journey. One night she turned to me and she said, who knew David was dead before I did? And I was like, well, <laughs> I said, just like when bad stuff happens to you, I said, you tend to turn to mom and me. I said, that night before we told you, I said, well, he was in the hospital. I said, I, I talked to my parents, you know, grandma and grandpa down in Florida and talked to nanny and granddad, you know, your mom's folks. And, you know, we told them what had happened. And, and your, your uncle Richard, who's the doctor, I contacted him. And I said, and of course, the friends who they we stayed with, she stayed with overnight, the neighbors, I said, I told Alicia what had happened. I said, and asked her not to say anything to you until we could tell you the next morning. And I braced myself for her being upset that she wasn't the first to know. She went, okay, thanks. And then went about her day. <laughs> it was yeah. just, she needed the question answered. It had suddenly occurred to her and there were no strings attached to it or anything overly emotional. It just had finally occurred to her that, hey, I might not have been the first person they told. Who else knew? You know, and she needed to know that. And then life went on. So, you know, and she came to me, oh, it was probably six months or so after David died. And I kept asking her, you know, this isn't your fault. None of this happened because of you. She had this nagging thing that even to this day, she'll joke about with me that that day her and David were playing and, and she had kind of tripped him on the floor and, and he had gotten hurt a little bit. And she wondered whether that had added to what had happened that night on the football field. Mm -hmm. And I told her, honey, I was there that afternoon where you guys were playing in the other room. I said, I don't remember David tripping and being hurt that afternoon playing. I said, there was nothing that happened yeah. between you guys. But she needed to hear that. And I'm still and she probably to needed day. to hear it again and again because it's oh, yeah. funny what your mind can do and how you can, especially a young child, how you can put that blame on yourself. Well, it's you no know? different than any of us. I mean, you know, I I certainly carry blame for the fact that I was the equipment manager and so incredibly supportive of David playing a sport that ultimately took him from us. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame football for it. But mm -hmm. as a parent, you know, I boil it down to we have one job when we become parents. Mm -hmm. Keep your kids alive. Yeah. And no matter how you look at it, even though it wasn't my fault or anything else, I will forever carry with me that thought that I did everything except the most basic of things, which was keep David alive. And yeah. There's no logic to any of that. There's, and you can explain away all the feelings. But that will always be there. There will always be a little voice in my head that will blame me for yeah. the fact that David didn't make it. You know, it's funny you use that phrase because just a couple of days ago, I am in a, this golf league and afterwards, outside on the porch in the, at the clubhouse, we will end up eating dinner. Right. So I'm eating dinner with this woman that I, woman that I golfed against who really knows nothing about me. I don't think she knows that Andy had died. Nothing. But it came up that people, there were a few of us at the table and they were all talking about having a dog and everyone had a dog. And that's always a difficult subject for me anyway, because Andy always wanted a dog and my husband would never let him have a dog. So 
<laughs> I never like having those conversations because, you know, one of them had gotten a pu- new puppy during COVID and, a, you know, a quarantine puppy, which seems like everybody's getting. So they were talking about dogs and the other woman across the table from me said, yeah, I don't have a dog. My husband and I have enough trouble keeping our two kids alive. And it just hit me so hard because all I could think in my head was, and I couldn't even do that. Right. I mean, it had nothing to do with, I mean, that was a, just a throw off the cuff comment that meant absolutely nothing except to joke about why she wasn't responsible enough for their family, wasn't responsible enough to have a dog. But for me, it, I mean, the immediate thought in my head was, and I can't even do that, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fascinating what things, and I, I hate the word, you know, it triggered me, it triggered me because I think it's been cheapened over the years from people who have real issues, mm-hmm. but you never know when you're in, in the real midst of grief and when it's in those first few years, especially, it can be any kind of statement or anything you see or a smell that you pass on the road or anything that will suddenly pop memories into your head and you have no control over it and it'll lead you down that path of any one of a number of painful paths and grief and it will just devastate you i mean and it's you you learn to maneuver through those as i'm I'm sure you're learning you know the next day so now just two days ago we had in our office you know i'm a pediatrician and and every two years we have to go get uh, CPR certified. So half of the office gets certified at a time. So the fireman comes, it's the same guy that's come for years to certify us in CPR. And I wasn't even thinking that that would be a challenge for me. Okay. I just didn't even think about it until I walked in the room and I walked in the room and I looked at this fireman and then I saw the six mannequins on the ground on the floor so this big room you know everyone's all spaced out because of covid and i was suddenly on the side of the road watching them do cpr on andy i mean that's all i could see and i could feel myself what it felt like what the grass felt like i could hear the traffic which I had never, it's funny because I've had kind of flashbacks before, but I never remembered exactly what the traffic sounded like until that moment because that was the most intense. And I, I just didn't think about it. I didn't think about the fact that, I mean, honestly, I've been a doctor for a long time and I I guess I've seen CPR like in my training, I ha- would have to do some, right? In on patients that were dying, I would have to do some chest compressions occasionally, on infants especially. Actually, I think that's the only time I've had to do it personally is on newborn infants trying to get them back. But, you know, I saw them do CPR on Handy. I saw his little body jumping up in the air and that's all I can see now. I can't look at that mannequin. And so I, I, I just walked in. I stood still. I'm not sure what my face looked like. And I just looked and I said, I can't do this. And I just walked out and went in a room and just cried. Because yeah. I can't. I mean, it just overwhelms me. And I never had even considered it as a possibility that that would be something that I could not do anymore. 
No, and now I'm we've sure. decided that I'm just going to be probably the one person in my office not CPR certified. And honestly, I've been certified since middle school, so I probably, in a pinch, would still be able to do it just fine. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you probably could. But yeah, it's and it's fascinating. You know, you mentioned the, the woman said that, you know, we're worried we couldn't keep the dog alive or whatever. Yeah, it, right, right. We have enough trouble keeping kids alive. Yeah, right. Uh, I my. My thing, Facebook is, has been a wonderful way to communicate with people. And I've reached a lot of people who both needed help and, and all sorts of that whole grief community. Yes, it's yes. been wonderful. But I've had a couple of good friends who were very, very supportive when David died, who four or five years down the road would lose a pet. And oh, I know. They don't have, the one I'm particularly thinking about doesn't have children. And she went on about having lost her cat once a week or more for six months. Yeah. And I understand that everyone's worst loss is their worst loss. And, but there, there's a, you have to let people know sometimes that until you've been there, you can't really understand, you know, yeah. and, and forgive me if, if, if I'm not drooling over your, your lamentations for your lost pet, mm -hmm. but I've lost pets there is no comparison and it's not no. even close. And that's not to diminish anyone else's grief, but there are certain things that your mind and your imagination, I'm an actor and a screenwriter and a performer, and I've been putting myself in other people's shoes my entire life. That's right. my job. That's my artistic job is to find the depths of people's emotion and their despair and those kind of things. I had no clue how yeah. deep the well was. Yeah. You know, it's, and until you're there, and, and I've learned because I don't want to discount anybody's, when I have friends that talk about the pets they've lost now, I've come up with a couple of phrases that express my sorrow for them and my sympathy to them without comparing it in my own mind to yes. what it's like to lose a child or for a parent to people who've lost their sibling, those kind of things where it's really close connections, you know. Yeah. It's become a, oh, it can be so difficult to lose that unconditional love of our four-legged family. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that expresses it to them and, and keeps an undercurrent in my head of just wait, it could have been a lot worse oh. <laughs> is what I want to say sometimes. And that's not to say that pets aren't integral parts of people's lives, but there is a difference. I, I had a very similar experience with a Facebook friend of mine who dog got sick and died and she was putting um updates of the dog's health like two or three times a day during this quick illness and death and it was getting to the point where it was so hard for me that I almost wanted to like you know unfriend her or something and then the dog died and then she was oh talking about the dog and the dog and the dog and then literally a week and a half later they got a new puppy yeah. And then they're showing pictures of this new puppy. And then it's like, well, and there's the difference too, isn't it? I mean, oh, yes. I know that that hurt and you had that dog a long time, but you went a grand total of 10 days and got a new puppy. I'm not getting a new kid. Well, no. and people, people say it partially because it makes them feel better and because they relate it to, you know, getting another dog after another one people don't realize how incredibly hurtful it can be when somebody loses a child, when somebody says, 
oh, which you're young, you can have another one. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you don't get it. (laughs) And yes, certainly we could have another child, but it's not ever going to replace that other soul. Ever, ever, ever. Yeah, you know. Ever. And, And I... I had a lot of anger towards people that didn't get it. I had, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious guy with organized religion. I have spirituality that revolves around a whole bunch of different ideas and thoughts, but straight religion is not something. And I had one woman who I'd worked with years ago who reconnected on Facebook around the time David died, who said to me, she goes, Oh, but just think he gets to see Jesus every day. And my comment to her was, yeah, I'm pretty sure he'd rather be playing with his PlayStation. Only because I understood it helped make her feel better. Yes. But you can't, you can't put your religious beliefs or the things that make you feel better onto other people. I've known lots of people because I've, I've done a lot of work with the compassionate friends and the bereaved parents of the USA. And I've talked with a lot of people who have lost children along the way. And even some of the most ardent religious people when this happens it questions all their faith and it makes them think that and they may very well get back to a point where god and their faith is their greatest support system Mm -hmm. but they need to find their way back to that no one can point them back to that yes it's it you know it's it's the kind of thing that they'll get there if they're meant to get back there and if they're not they'll find their own way through it. You can't simply throw your religion at somebody to make them feel better Mm -hmm. because it doesn't happen because we all have different, very personal relationships with whatever higher being we do or don't believe in. you know? So it's, I I see people all the time like, Oh, well, you have to go to church. You have to go to church. And it's like, give them a break. If they're, if they find their way back to church, they'll find their way back. And some, for some people, that's exactly what they need to do. For, mm-hmm. for my wife, getting back to work was a very important thing to her, even though her work days were nowhere near what they were for quite a long time. That idea of being in the office, being a part of that, having something to do was important to her healing. She did more than enough of the crying and the soul searching and the other stuff she needed sort of that respite to get back to work to be able to take her mind off of it, which is really, which brings me around to the improv that I've used. Yeah. Because I've, I've been a performer and an improviser for over a quarter of a century. I've taught improv to people. I've, I've directed troops. I've started my own troops. I've been a part of it. I was a part of a group in LA at the time uh, where I was teaching and I was also in a troupe that we were performing. And six weeks after David died, I went back to getting on stage to perform because it's who I was. Mm -hmm. You know, the the night I went back on stage, I looked up at the sky and I told David, I know this may seem weird. I'm going back to try and make people laugh, but you know, this is who I am and I have to do it. You know, I I hope it's okay with you. Mm -hmm. And I actually found that being on stage and particularly the improv because it's all about making it up in the moment for 45 minutes a week that was the only respite i got from david's grief because my mind was so involved in being on stage and performing that it gave me that break it didn't give me time to think about david uh and i i specifically remember about two months back 
we were in rehearsal and I started doing an improv about a guy who'd lost his son. And I was sort of was sort of walking the line of being funny, being serious and this, but it was the natural progression for me for where the scene was going. And I went there and I suddenly realized the entire room, which was all the improvisers in this whole company was about 30 people had all gotten horribly silent. Yes. Because I didn't realize I'd gone down the road of a guy who'd lost his son and they all knew what I was get, where I was going, but it hadn't registered in my own head that it was the same thing. And they were all mortified. Yes. And that night on the way home, I realized, okay, I'm turning a corner, <laughs> which of course it was a very big corner that I would not turn and will not turn until, you know, I leave this world. But it was that getting around it, I was learning to find a way around it and through it, you know. Well, I've talked about that with a lot of moms. There is a kind of dark humor that we as bereaved parents can kind of do with each other that that other people just can't. You know, I can, you know, I've talked to friends of mine and said, yeah, you know, you bring up your dead kid and suddenly the room's silent. Okay. (laughs) I can't, I can't say that to the average person, but my bereaved mom girlfriends all laughed and thought it was hilarious because that's exactly right because it does you know even yesterday um I was just seeing a patient and it was a family that I'm actually really really close to and the daughter had had a lot of serious medical conditions early on in life and now she's like she runs all over and she can't can't keep her from like running out in the street and doing really dangerous things and and she's scared. And I said, I totally get that. I totally understand that because I know I've had your world crash in just a second. So yeah. I said that to her to make her be like, oh, I understand and feel. But it suddenly I look at her and she has this look of like horror on her face. Like, I can't believe she just said that to me. Because obviously I was referring to the fact that my son had died almost two years ago in the matter of, you know, somebody not paying attention while they're driving for two seconds. So I didn't mean to make her feel uncomfortable. I meant to make her to be able to say, I understand where you're coming from. That must be really scary for you. But I like, ooh, probably shouldn't have, you know, made her jump back to that. And it was fine. I mean, within... A couple of seconds, she realized I was fine. It's not like I was tearing up about it and all emotional about it. I was really, truly was just saying, I understand how scary that would be for you. And this is how we're going to try to help her and help you. So it was just a second. But that instant in her eyes, just realizing probably can't even say that to people who really know. You know what I mean? Because they get worried. I, I I told my first joke the night David was still in the emergency room before it was all over. And even though we sort of knew it was, it was a horribly bad taste, bitter, angry joke that was not meant to get a laugh. But it came through my sarcasm because that's the avenue that I know to express things. So, you know, that kind of thing comes out. And yet people... My daughter talks all the time. She has, within her friend group, both from high school and college, there's a couple of young ladies who have lost their moms 
or had other tragedies that have befell them one way or another. And Abby says, you know, they can sit around and they, they occasionally make these horrible death jokes, mm -hmm. either about their mom or your brother or whatever. And she said, we always sort of giggle and laugh at each other when we do it back and forth, but we're in the group where there's three or four other people and they all look at us like, oh my God, they're talking about the death stuff. <laughs> and she said, then she said, now it's gotten to a point where occasionally they'll needle everybody else and bring it up just because they know it drives the others crazy. You know, mm -hmm. that's what being 18 and dealing with this yes. kind of thing is. You know, My daughter, the exact same thing. She's a senior yeah. in high school and she was sort of friends with this girl before Andy died, but her mother and other family members had been killed in the car, in a car accident just, I think, two years or maybe a year and a half before Andy. So they really have since bonded, right? Because that, and they do that all the time. They make these jokes that make everyone extremely uncomfortable, but for the two of them, they think it's, you know, funny. Well, it's <laughs> like, bonding. Because yeah. I know what it was. They were in a, a support group together. They were doing a little support group thing and somebody uh, talked about, they talked about something that had happened the night before. Just some light little thing, nothing that was, you know, deep at all. And they said, oh, you guys were together last night? What were you doing? And my daughter goes, well, I'm talking about our dead family members. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this... everyone is like, oh, my word, I can't believe you just said that. Well, to the two of them, it was like, yep, that's what we're doing, you know. You know, we, we hear all the time in pop culture, especially nowadays, that, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, don't play the race card or this or that or something else. Well, my wife and I had this, and we still to this day, because there are times when it's quote unquote helpful to play the death card. Yeah. You know, I, I know it sounds crazy, but there are certain situations when you want somebody to do something to help you out. If there's a way to drop in the information that, well, you know, when my son died, boom, suddenly people are like, I'm sorry, what can I do for you? <laughs> and it's, it's an unfair advantage sometimes. And we don't do it nearly as much now. We're, we're 10 years down the road. But there were some times, you know, during that first five years where if it was going to help us get through something that was being difficult by making someone else feel guilty, the, David yeah. would help me out. And that's always how we referred to it was David's helping me out. You know, yep. it seems like it's bad taste, but it's how you integrate it back into your life. You know, I always well, say- Or if somebody is going through their kind of complaints after complaint after complaint and you just can't take it anymore. Yeah. That is a time when you can bring up the, oh, when, when, when my son died, I, yeah. And that will shut them up for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, and, and I have a book that I wrote and I started this organization healing improv to help people. And the book really started by, I went out online reading stuff that other people wrote because I found, I went to a compassionate friends meeting early on and it was, it was simply being in a room with other people who had gone through what I'd been through. Mm -hmm. That I needed to know that there was another, the other side to the hurdle that I was facing to, of life. 
And I went two or three times and I sat and I listened to someone who had lost three children over the course of her life and other things. And it made me realize that I can get through this to the other side. So I, I started looking around and I started sharing online and writing stuff. And the book really started out is I wanted to write David's story of what happened and the grief I went through so that if in 20 years Alzheimer's gets me and I don't remember it, I would have it in my words as to what went down that I could always go back to and read. Mm -hmm. And that sort of flourished into, for a while, it was a blog sharing with people. And then I took a lot of that blog. And when we moved to Grand Rapids, because this was all in LA where David died in Los Angeles. When we moved to Grand Rapids, um, I started doing theater down at the Civic Theater and, and was getting ready to start an improv training down there and an improv troupe. And it dawned on me that a lot of these improv exercises that we do with the basic people might help some of the people who I was running into online. You know, half the people I meet would say, oh, I've been where you are. I know what you're going through. Keep moving. You, you'll do okay. And the other half would say things like, it's been seven years and I can't get out of bed. Yeah. And I haven't. And my heart, I, I've always been a positive, optimistic guy. I mean, that's always been the way my life is. And I started thinking, I got to be able to do something to help these people who are stuck in their grief, who can't seem to move forward. And I started this organization called Healing Improv, where we do, we do group sessions. I don't want to call it group therapy because it's not. They're workshops where basically I just bring people together, let them quickly tell the story of why they're there, who they're grieving, and then we just play games. And it's all about challenging them, getting them to laugh at themselves and to laugh at each other and to connect them and communicate with the people around them, which really is what improv is all about. And I have seen some amazing transformations. I always tell people I don't look for return customers. This isn't about you coming back and doing improv every week or doing something like that. It's really about people giving people a kickstart to see that it's okay to laugh. And which is something that people going through grief, they feel too guilty to allow themselves to express laughter or joy in any way. But if you can get people there in sort of an organic way, and then they realize, wow, I'm standing in a room of 20 other people who've lost children, and we're all laughing. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a healing element to that. And there's that emotional element of laughter and tears are right next to each other. They're the only two involuntary emotional responses that outwardly people can really see what's going on. And if you get one flowing, the other one tends to loosen up as well. And it's an emotional thing. And I read early on that to lean into the grief because it's every, every wave and storm of grief that comes is you getting your relationship with that grief back in line. And if you can keep in your head through all the tears and everything else that this is doing me good, even while, you know, you're, you're shooting Gatorade to keep yourself hydrated because you're crying so much. I mean, even if you're in that kind of torrential fight, if you can keep that small kernel that every one of these tears is helping me move forward, it helps. Because when that tears are over, it's sort of like that nice thunderstorm on a summer afternoon afterwards the air is a little clearer and things seem a little bit and it takes years to get that and it's a relationship with guilt it's it's a 
we we have an accommodation made guilt i know where guilt li or grief lives and grief knows where i live and i'll visit there occasionally when i have to and give a cry or whatever but it's allowed it to transform and become part of my life heck our lives are different depending on whether we got the red light or the green light at the at the intersection because you know whether we got to work on time or whether we got there two minutes late or whatever the little events that happen in our lives affect us down the road why shouldn't these major events be something that will affect us forever they're they're part of who we are and and you can't move past it you have to just sort of gain this accommodation that okay this is part of who i am and where my life is now how do i live that and how do i keep moving mm -hmm. You're right. I mean, every single event in our lives changes you just a little bit, right? All of our experiences help make us who we are. So it was interesting you talking about going back and doing improv so quickly, really six weeks after the death. But that is who you are. And you needed to still feel like you had that. Oh, yeah. Because if you had shoved that away and said, well, this is totally inappropriate for me now. Now you're mourning David and you're mourning you because you're oh, mourning yes. everything that you were outside of being a dad, you know, your entire occupation and career and personhood. Now you've lost that, too. So it was great that you were able to hang on to that. It's not the same, right? You're not the same even performer that you were before, it impacts you, it has changed you, but it was part of you that you could now move forward with just in a changed fashion. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I always said the one thing I was really lousy at as an actor was crying on stage. Yeah. Problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I now know where those tears live and I know how to access them. Great story. The night that I went back to perform, I told you that I looked up and I told David, I hope you understand I'm going back to doing this. The part I didn't tell you in that story was I was out back in an alley of this little theater in Los Angeles and I was looking up at the stars, what few stars you can see through the haze in LA. And I remember I asked David, I said, so, you know, if this is okay with you, send me a sign so that I know this is okay. And I stood there like an idiot and looked around at the sky looking for some kind of sign that, you know, and I, had, I don't even believe in that kind of stuff, but that certainly is where I was at the time. And when I turned around to walk back into the theater about 10 feet before I walked through the door, a shooting star flew through the sky and looked as if it actually landed in the roof of the theater. Wow. Now, now, do I think that David was somewhere redirecting a little meteorite so that a shooting star would go through? And the, no, I, I don't believe that. But there's un, undeniable signs that we can all see and find in our lives. And whether there's anything supernatural connected to them or not, they give us meaning and allow us to connect and move forward. And that was that was a a bizarre thing that I still can't, I, I certainly don't think David sent me that sign, but it happened. Uh, there are things I don't know. <laughs> maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but it certainly is this wonderful mythical story to tell people about my recovery and my growth. You know, it's, yeah, uh, I have, I have a, a guest on just a few weeks ago who called those little signs. Now she is of um, Christian faith, 
but she said she calls them God winks, where God just winks at you and gives you a little sign. And right. so that may very well be what happened to you. You never you know. You got a little bit of a God wink. So <laughs> You never know. But I like no, that no. term. I think that's a, a, a neat kind of term. Yes, it is. It mm -hmm. is. Now, I, I've had a transformation of my tears over David. I, I, I saw earlier, as you were talking about Andy and some of the stuff, I, I saw tears and the stuff you go through well up a little bit. I, it's fascinating. It used to be tears would be about the sadness of having lost David. Mm -hmm. The first five years, that's what they were about. The last five years or so, my tears come from a completely different place. And it's, it's part of how my grief has transformed. My tears now come when I see love expressed mm -hmm. by people to other people, sometimes from stranger to another stranger. Or if I start talking about Abby and how she's been able to come through this and who she's become, the tears for losing David are now always represented through tears of love. And when I see acts of love from other people, somehow that sadness and loss has turned into this great appreciation for the love that's out there in the world. And the tears come from that I don't have that with David here now in a physical sense, but it's become, it, it, it's very much a different kind of tears that come now. It's really supportive out of seeing great love in humanity for each other than it is about the loss specifically. And I, I think that's just a byproduct of having been down the road so far and having been able to heal and share with so many people. And that's what really lasts is that love. And it doesn't die. And if, if anything, it can grow stronger, even though they're not here. And the tears are simply the fact that there's no place to express the love anymore. So it comes out as tears. Sometimes they're sad tears. Sometimes they're happy tears. But that's where the grief goes to if you hang on to the love. It goes to a a warmer place than always that desperation of places. Mm -hmm. That sounds similar to something my therapist said to me oh, last year because I felt like I was hanging on to the sorrow and the guilt and the anger and just the all the heaviness of grief. I was hanging on to that because it felt like if I let go of that, I'd be letting go of Andy. And that's right. all I had left. That's what I felt in my heart. I felt like I can't stop being sad pretty much every moment of every day because if I did, it would mean that I didn't miss him anymore and that I didn't, you know, that that that, that would be letting go of him somehow. And right. I remember my therapist saying to me, that's not what is holding you to Andy. Your love holds you to Andy. This other stuff, this other negative stuff, you can let go of that and not lose your love for Andy and not lose your intimate connection with Andy. And that love can continue. And like you said, even grow stronger, even though he's not there anymore. So that was a huge revelation to me and, and, I, and something I need to remind myself of honestly, again and again and again, because I still have so much of some of those negative things coming up. 
And so it is a long, long process. But to be able to have someone, first my therapist and now you, say really the <laughs> same thing is <clears throat> letting go of that part is okay and good because that's not my connection to him. That's not yeah. what tethers us together still. It's the it's the love. Well, and it's interesting. I, I have found the people that tend to find their way forward and heal as much as they can, but find that clear path forward. People have a tendency when somebody passes, we see it in the media all the time when somebody famous passes, all they do is talk about the really good things and they talk about all, they deify a person and everything else. Yeah. We have a couple of big stories in our family about David when he was younger that are weird little stories. <laughs> yeah. They're quirky little stories of how David was human and he did odd little things sometimes and everything else. We have held on to those as strongly as we can and made sure that the memory of who David was isn't some deification of some perfect child who they, where, where you did, but right. he was real. He had good stuff. He had bad stuff. He had stuff that if he was here right now, we'd be making fun of him for. Mm -hmm. So we still will laugh about them because that keeps him real and that keeps that keeps it from going to a place of something that you can't touch or something yeah. that you're afraid to touch. It keeps him very visceral and keeps him the person who we loved so dearly and not just some grand memory that's lost. Yeah, it, I I have definitely had to do that with my kids a lot. Talk about Andy's faults. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I do that a lot because for a while I didn't. And then I got you know, one of my kids was said to me in kind of anger one time, you don't remember what he was really like. You just think he was perfect. So it, it hit me. Well, first of all, I do remember what he was like. And I do remember how he drove me crazy. And I tell them again and again, like, he was always the one I worried about the most, because he drove me crazy, because he had more struggles than the other two. Honestly, he really did. Of the three kids, he had the most struggles. So I I have been very intentional about talking about his faults to them now because they really felt like, at least my daughter felt like I was forgetting what he was really like. And then she was, you know, never going to live up to this perfect Andy. And so many people said, like other people at the funeral and afterwards. And so, so, um, Andy had a beautiful voice. So at the end of my podcast, every time I play him singing the last verse of Away in the Manger, he was in the Grand Rapids Choir of Men and Boys and a senior chorister and was a phenomenal, had a phenomenal voice. And people would say, you know, oh, he has a voice of an angel. And they would say things like some of those things that you would mention, like, oh, he was just never meant for this world. Well, do you know how much that drives your siblings crazy? If oh, now yeah. other people are saying your brother was a perfect angel that wasn't meant to be on this in this earth. I mean, first of all, totally not true, right? He right. was as a messed up kid in a lot of ways. And <laughs> so I have to be super conscious of saying that to them because they were getting a little bit of the feeling from me, but definitely from other people from other people saying those things and 
making him sound angelic in some way, which is not true. I mean, it's fine if they want to put it that way that you can't put it. I mean, in our family, we need to keep him as the messy kid that he was. Yep. Because that's the kid I loved and that's the kid they loved. And you can't like make him seem something he wasn't. Then he's not real. No, absolutely. That well, that's the thing, and it, it it's it's funny because I mean we all we've got a whole lot more memory stored in our banks than our kids do because we yeah. just live longer. So it, it gets Abby remembers way more of the tiny details of day to day life with David than I do. Not yeah. that I wasn't there or that I wasn't paying attention. It's just that as anything, she experienced her relationship with David, they were best buds. I mean, you know, right. my wife and I talk about how we lost David and, and our lives were crushed, but she lost everything. Yeah. It was her best friend. It was her partner in crime. It was, you know, who she learned how to fight with and who she learned how to apologize to. And he was everything. He was the big brother. Yeah. You know, that's and to her- my youngest, bro- youngest too. Same thing. I mean, he adored yeah. Andy, just adored him. Oh, yeah. And but Abby also has, you know, very distinct memories of things that happened that I don't even remember or didn't even know were happening. Right. Little dances they did to certain cartoon shows and other things. And Abby came to me a while back, quite a while ago, but she said, you know, I'm worried that I'm forgetting stuff. I'm worried that I'm forgetting things about David. And, you know, we're at a point now. Abby has had more Christmases without David than she had with him. Yeah. She's, you know, she's had more birthdays. She's had, we've gotten past that point where we've had David, he's been gone longer than he was here now. And that's a real strange tipping point when you get there, when you realize that, yeah, we had him for 10 years and it was wonderful, but it's been more than that now that he's been gone. And, you know, the majority of her memories of Christmas are memories without it you know because even the the first couple of years she was a baby she doesn't remember any of that you know she has five maybe six at the outside christmas memories of years with david she's got 10 of them since where he hasn't been here you know and and that evolution and i told her i said we're all going to forget things you know, I've, I've forgotten things about David. And I'm sure the only way through that is for us to keep talking about the stuff that we remember, even if the other person doesn't remember, because mm-hmm. that will keep him here as fully as we can if we keep sharing about it. You know, and that that's what we ultimately have done. Yeah. So are you still doing some of your improv stuff now? Or what, well, what are things uh, like right now? I was supposed to meet with a a group of men, a a grief group of men that somebody had started here in Michigan. And we we had lunch to talk about me coming in and talking with them and doing a session. And then COVID hit. And of course, nothing, nothing healing improv wise can I do over Zoom or anything else. It's just it's about being in the same room with people. So I'm not right now. Mm -hmm. And I've also I've gotten to a point I spent good five years traveling around, giving talks about it, giving workshops and those kind of things. And then I started to feel like I'm at a point in my grief journey where 
necessarily going back to the very early years of the Greece journey is not necessarily good for me anymore either. Right. Because every time I meet somebody who's in that first six months of having lost somebody, a, a child, it takes you right back, whether you want it to or not, to areas that I don't want to say I've conquered them, I'm beyond them, because of course you're never beyond them, but it takes you back to a place where I have comfortably moved beyond to, mm -hmm. to, to keep living my life. And it's hard always going back sometimes to that very basic spot in the journey. And, and not that I can't go back there, it's just that it's difficult for me. And sometimes I, I use the word to people all the time, selfish, we're always taught as a bad word. Sometimes it's not. And protecting your own heart and protecting your own psyche, sometimes you have to be a little bit selfish. And I'm still more than willing to go out and do uh, healing improv workshops and things like that for people that know me and those kind of things that in people who search me out. And it happens every once in a while. But I'm, I'm not a fundraiser. And my little, 50, my little 501c3 was a wonderful little thing. But to really give it the kind of heft it needed, I would have needed to go out and do a bunch of fundraising and everything else. And that's different than what I was doing. I was never looking to make money doing it. I was doing it because David was a, a real giving kid. He was the kind of kid that after a party, he'd say, let's take the leftovers and drive around town and give them to the homeless people because they need food and things like that. He liked the homeless shelter going and cooking meals and helping kids there. And so, so it's been about sharing with other people who are going through what I went through and not so much running a business or right. anything like that. So I still certainly, when someone connected you and I, it yep. was like, I more than am willing to talk about where I am on the journey and what life's about, but I'm not actively out there looking to do it right now. And that's partially because my wife retired last fall from her long-term corporate job. We're sort of ready to turn a page and keep moving in our lives. And David will come with us everywhere we go, but it's a different chapter that's beginning and we're sort of headed in a different direction. Well, and I feel like the parents that I have talked to that have a little place to kind of focus their grief and, and like you really did with the improv, I feel like with me, with the podcast, it's something I can do with Andy. And I feel like I'm kind of doing it with Andy. And I think that's the improv with you. I think you, that was something you could still do with David. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it's not something that you need to do with David forever, but for a time it was definitely, I'm sure helped you along that grief journey to have, to know that this time is set aside of the week or the day or the whatever that I'm working on my grief and I'm working on this with David. And that's what I feel like I, it, this gets that for me. And I've seen that with so many families and whether it's, little things like I have a mom that would paint rocks and leave them in different places. That's right. not a big thing. I had another mom that would buy up some gift cards and bring them to the children's hospital to hand out. That's not a big thing. I have other ones that have huge, big foundations that they've done or right. they've written books or things that are big. It doesn't matter if it's big or small, but if it's something focus, I think it just helps us to keep moving forward or keep moving at least. 
sometimes yeah, forward, sometimes sideways, but keep moving. Sometimes the best tools for us to heal ourselves is to help others see the things that we have learned or yes. just sharing with people. There is no doubt that helping other people helps you. It, it gets you a little bit outside of yourself. It allows you to see it a little bit more on a global thing and as a community thing that there's a group of people going through this. And we, we all do whatever it takes to get through it. Helping other people makes you feel good and doing it knowing that it's keeping the memory of your child alive and who they were and that you're helping them keep the memories of their children alive that helping heals and the healing helps and it, it, it it's in both directions it's yes. a give and take and feeling like you're in community with other people oh yeah mm -hmm. uh, to me that was the most powerful thing and it's why i gravitated to groups like the bereaved parents of the usa and the compassionate friends is though they have some professional psychologists and stuff that are a part of the group in one way or another the only reason they're parts of the group is because they've lost a child or family member sibling the same way mm -hmm. everyone who's there it's peer-to-peer -peer. and yeah. to me the thing that really worked the best was just knowing that there are other regular people of all walks of life who've been through this and, and who have gotten through it mm -hmm. and they're willing to share and they're also willing to listen yeah. more than most people are because we all know how desperately people need to talk about those that are gone too soon. Yes. You know? And and it's so much easier to do that with someone who's experienced it than with someone else. There, there's no apologies. There's no, when the tears start to come as you're talking, there's no, oh, do you need a tissue? Oh, it's okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You don't get that at all. From right. You don't get it at all because person. give me five minutes. I may be there with you. Right. You know, so there's you, there's a relaxation of some of our cultural norms that we have to keep up around strangers. Like, if I were to meet John Travolta, or I were to meet some of the other celebrities that have lost a child down the road, sad story, Joe Biden, you know, yeah. I have something in common and I have an experience in common with them that most people don't have that we could talk instantly on a level that's not, ooh, you're a celebrity, ooh, you're a politician. I have a human thing in common with them that I can say one sentence to them and they're gonna get it. Right. And suddenly there'd be a connection there. And it wouldn't matter who else was in the room. And that that's powerful whether people are famous or they're complete strangers. The mo I have a good friend. In fact, we met for coffee outside of Panera in the rain yesterday because none of us, neither of us wanted to sit inside uh, with all the other people without masks on who uh, we were doing a show together down at the Civic Theater. And it was my first show down at the Civic. And one night I wore one of my T-shirts with David's picture on the back and the date. It was one of the Compassionate Friends T-shirt. He walked over it to me during the middle of the thing and he said, Tell me about your son and I'll tell you about mine. And boom, suddenly yeah. we had this shared knowledge and an instant friendship because we both saw it sort of the same way. And there was this connection that has lasted now, you know, eight years. Steve and I still get together and talk and we, when anniversaries come up of each other's child, either passing or birthday or whatever, we share it back and forth. But 
it started the thing that connected he and I, and we're very different. He's a, he's a, a preacher who is a very down to earth guy who came to preaching after his son had died. Me, I was never close to religion and I moved a little bit further away after David died. But our base humanity and how we look at interpersonal relationships and love and it is completely in step with each other and we get each other. And it was our boys that brought us to that. It was our boys that brought us together who'd both been gone a long time by the time we met. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, there's that shared grief and that shared understanding, which is powerful between people who have experienced the same thing. It is absolutely powerful. I totally agree. And I'm glad that our boys got us together today so that we could chat and you could share. As am I. And hopefully I appreciate some, so much your input out today. there hears us chatting about all of our crazy thoughts and things that went through our heads and they realize that they're not alone, which yes. is really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not the first person to go through this and that doesn't diminish what you're going through at all. But there's others of us out here who get it. We understand. Don't be afraid to reach out. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.